If I could talk to the audience. Luca, get down from the Luca, get down from there. Luca, get get down from the thing. Oh, there he goes. Hello everybody and welcome back to We've Got Mail. <laughs> this is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a film critic. For the purposes of this particular podcast, you may write in and call me Rockmeister McCool. That's my nom de plume, I suppose. It's your nom de answering I, emails. I need to write a book with uh, under that pen name. Ah, yes. What would Rockmeister McCool write? Like, what would what would you need that nom? Oh, de definitely hard boiled detective stories. Really, Rockmeister McCool would write hard boiled detective what, stories. What with a name like Rockmeister? I feel like Rockmeister, but McCool, I feel takes away from. It. I feel like Rockmeister mm. McCool would write like hard boiled detective novels about like. A teen skateboarder who solves mysteries, <laughs> which oh, admittedly can, is a good pitch. I can I can write stories about Mooter. <laughs> what Mooter is a uh, uh, never mind. I'll explain later. Uh, it's a character I came up with, but like came up with axioms to entertain my coworkers. Okay, like life is a lot like nachos. It's uh, no li- life is like uh, life is like nachos. Better on a skateboard. Uh, <laughs> so wrote Mooter. So wrote, yeah. So says Mooter. That kind of okay, thing. Nice. Anyway, this is this is we've got mail. It's our <laughs> podcast here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, where we read your emails. You can write into us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net Reasonably easy to remember. I hope. If not, it's in the description. Uh, and uh, you can write in with anything you want. You can uh, talk to us about stuff we discussed in our previous podcasts. You can uh, ask us questions. Uh, have us, like, I don't know, shoot the shit. You know, whatever you want. Or we can talk about serious topics, film history, TV, whatever you want, really. This is your time. And we don't like to dilly-dally more than we already have. At the beginning of these shows, so uh, away we go, Whitney. Tell us about our first email. Uh, here is a letter from Josh. Hi, Josh. Uh, Hi. Hello, Bibbs and Whitney. Uh, I'm not very good at expressing myself with the written word, so I hope what I have to say comes across well. I've been listening to film podcasts and all other types of podcasts, ranging from all different types of to- podcast types of topics, since podcasts were first created. Wow! All the podcasts. And I would say Critically Acclaimed is by far my favorite. Wow, uh, thank you. If there was an Oscar for podcasts, you guys would be the Meryl Streep of podcasting. <laughs> thank so, you. Thank you very much. I think much. there are actually podcasting awards, and I don't think we've ever been nominated for any of them. No, I don't. No. I think that makes us like, what is that, the Steve Buscemi of podcasting? Or uh, Somebody who's just like consist- awesome, but, yeah. consistently good but never nominated yeah, for man, anything. I hate calling us consistently yeah. good because that sounds a heck of a lot like... like <laughs> positive self-esteem and that's not really my vibe but i am grateful that's very nice of you to say thank you uh and in my many years of film podcast listening i've noticed a lot of trends with certain critics that anytime they review a foreign language film they tend to criticize the film for the characters in the film from an american perspective Mm. well we we are americans yeah uh that's 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 our cross to bear uh for example when the film roma came out i remember a caucasian woman criticizing the main character named cleo i don't exactly remember word for word what this critic had said, but it was basically that Cleo was too timid and should have been more vocal and aggressive to the man who impregnated and then abandoned her. Mm. And I see her perspective in that, yes, a woman in that position should do those things. But from my perspective, growing up with my grandmas and aunts who are Cuban, Dominican and Spaniards, 
Uh, culturally Hispanic women from the 1970s were raised to be more reserved, to keep their opinions and emotions hidden, and that's what made the ending so much more powerful when Cleo finally broke down. I saw a lot of Cleo in, from, in the women in my family. Hmm. Um, I actually remember, uh, a brief aside, I remember reading a review of the film uh, Sliding Doors back yeah. when that came out in the, in the mid-90s. I love how that movie and, uh, was like kind of nothing, and now yeah. it's like... It's, the only movie that really did that, so we all go back to Sliding Doors yeah, all the time, really, even though it wasn't really that regarding. popular. But uh, great movie, I like it a lot. The uh, the criticism was the only way to make British characters seem assertive and palatable to American audiences is to cast American actors and have them play British characters. Oh, because Gwyneth Paltrow, Gwyneth Paltrow played Paltrow a British character. Paltrow was the lead, yeah. played a British character yeah. in that movie, and yeah, the um, the sort of one, like tunnel vision that American, uh, just Americans in general tend to have about the rest of the world uh, is, mm-hmm. is just in everything we react well, to. Well, I, like I it's wanna, in all of our reviews. It's I, I want to get back writing. to the email, but regarding mm-hmm. that specific instance, I think mm-hmm. that's at least partially, and I agree with you what your, your mm-hmm. overall point, but I also think it's at least partially uh, uh, part of a, another American tendency, which is the desire to see American stars in everything. It's just right. a matter of, we think that's marketable. Whether or not it actually is, is another mm-hmm. point. But it's like, well, we can get Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. So that's the star we'll get. That's the biggest mm-hmm. star we can get. We'll work it around her. Renee Zellweger, she's the biggest star we can get. Mm-hmm. You know, she was she wasn't like huge yet, but she was like famous after Jerry Maguire. I think Bridget Jones is what really pushed her over the yeah, top in terms yeah. of movie stardom. But I, regardless, like yeah, I think it's movie stardom, and that mm-hmm. gives people tunnel vision. Everything's got to revolve around the movie star, even whether or not it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To be fair, I think Gwyneth Paltrow is good in that movie. But anyway. Well, whether or not she's good, it's, I know, she's just, an American actress. Just make it, um, uh, back to the email. Uh, also, Bibbs recently had an issue with the Alfredo character in Cinema Paradiso. That Alf- Alfredo, for some reason, was telling Salvatore to leave the little town and go make something of himself. Bibbs stated that he didn't understand why Salvatore would tell him to leave and never come back. Yes, I agree that Salvatore should have visited his mother from time to time, but I viewed this as as that Alfredo wanted a more adventurous life for himself and didn't want Salvatore to live the same life he did, being stuck in a small village his whole life. I hope I'm not speaking out of turn, because I know uh, that Bibbs is of Italian descent, but I see a lot of similarities culturally between Italians and the Latinos I know. As my two grandpas, who are from the Dominican Republic and the other one being from Spain, would tell me stories of them being... Uh, small and from small villages, wanting to leave in search of a better life, so I viewed Alfredo the same lens as my grandfather's. Uh, I'm not shaming a critic for no, doing his no, job. No, no, you're I'm, doing sure, great. I'm sure I do the same thing when I watch other films from other countries that I can't relate to, but I just wanted to know what you guys thought about that. Thanks for taking my question. Uh, that's a great question. Yeah, Is that the end uh, of you? Uh, no, there's actually a, 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 oh, okay, sorry. a postscript here. Um, also, here's a fun fact. I know you guys were big fans of the Small Axe films, especially Mangrove. There is a scene in the beginning in which the Letitia Wright character mentions the spirit of Ogun to f- the Frank character. And I don't know if you guys remember this scene, but she's basically referencing the spirit of Ogun from the Ifa religion, also known as Yoruba or Santeria. The scene really stuck out to me because my father is sort of a minister in this religion. Mm. My father is from Cuba, and when the slaves from Africa were brought to Cuba, they brought this religion with them. They hid it in... 
they hid it from the Catholic slave owners by replacing the spirit names with the names of saints. Mm. So in the scenes where Frank asks why she mentions Ogun, she says she's feeling a bit of his energy. In the religion, Ogun represents strength and was a warrior, also a blacksmith on earth, with his machete that would cut through the bush in order to clear a path for the Ochosi, who represent justice, and was also a hunter and would be able to reach his kill before it would spoil together strength with intelligence and could find justice. So I think the director is making a similar, uh, making a similarity between Frank and the Ogun deity. Mm. My dad was very excited to see this portrayed in film. Thanks for the long, me- uh, sorry for the long message. Wish you guys the best. Thanks. Never apologize mm. for a long email. Uh, firstly, that that last bit there, I did not pick up on that. I don't know all the details of that religion. That's awesome that that's in there mm. and that there's that much specificity. Yeah, Even if I'm not aware of the fuller context, the presence of specificity is usually hard to mistake. Yeah. And it's so much more immersive. Uh, and uh, that's awesome. I really love that. Uh, regarding uh, my my critique of Cinema Paradiso, which wasn't so much a critique so much as... It, it's not a question of... I think some critics get... It's a trap to fall mm. into this thing where it's like, that's not what I would do. Or that's not what the character should have done. Mm. Uh, I think the real issue is, is it what you think, based on what you have seen, the character would have done? Mm. That's the fundamental issue here. And my issue with Cinema Paradiso, which again, it's not like I don't buy that this guy would tell this kid to go off on adventures and like leave his hometown. I just thought never coming back seemed a little extreme since by that point he had developed a bit of, I don't know if he was ever really friendly with the kid's mother, but he became part of the family, Mm. I thought. And I thought like basically saying never come visit your mom felt a little extreme. Uh, but uh, regardless, it's, it's a, it really didn't hurt the film. It's just a moment. I kind of stuck out in my head. But yeah, well, listen, we're Americans. I mean, I'm I'm Italian American, but like mm-hmm. I am very American, and I've never really traveled internationally to speak of, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm which I'm ashamed of. It's a bun- it's a money thing. That's all there is. I just can't afford it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we can't help but view films through the lens that we like bring our, into the theater. Our cultural context. Yeah. yeah. Like, and, and, so, and there's a wide variety of cultural context. People have a wide variety of backgrounds and lives. Oftentimes they lived in multiple, uh, uh, communities and cultures and surrounded by very different kind of people. And their life experiences are incredibly varied. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why, and I, I, I I'm going to keep saying this until the problem is solved. So I'll probably be saying it until I die. Uh, but uh, that's why we need critics of all different kinds. Mm. You know, we can't just be the same demographic uh, talking about film all the time. We just yeah. can't. Can't be the, all the same ages. Can't be all the same backgrounds. Can't be all the same uh, uh, sexual identities. Can't be. We need everybody because it's only when we see an almost infinite amount <laughs> of perspectives on the same art that we can really like blossom and see like the whole world mm. from every perspective. That's one of my favorite things about criticism is that there's so many different voices. Um, so I appreciate the point that it can be frustrating to see American audiences only applying mm-hmm. an American lens through international yeah. cinema because there's so many American critics who are coming from a similar place in addition to being from America. America's yeah. a melting pot. There's a million different communities here, but there are oftentimes too many uh, too much representation of like one mindset, which is yeah. frustrating. The, the, the American zeitgeist does tend to... Um come to the fore and then begins to dictate the conversation, especially about art, especially about international art. Um, and it's helpful to have both perspectives, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, to have, uh, 
various cultures come at a singular culture's art and mm-hmm. and see how um, how various people react to it. And I think that reveals a lot about our character as a civilization, as it were, the sort of overall uh, character of who, is who we are. You know, it's interesting. I was also thinking about how um, Americans don't get every single international film. I mean, we could potentially seek it out, mm. but A, that's a lot, and B, uh, it's... It, it, people aren't going to do that. It's just inconvenient. Everyone's got to go about their day, uh, and they, you can't just go about looking for every single movie from every single country constantly. So what we tend to do mm. is just watch the films that are made available to us in America, and the films that are made available to us in America are predominantly films that various distributors believe would appeal to an American audience. So it's not uncommon for the international films that people see in America to feel a little bit more maybe arguably Western Mm. than maybe other films that don't make it over here, that are completely enmeshed in a culture that is very not really related to the American experience. And as a result, some, some of us, and I'm sure this has included me as well at some point or another, if not too much uh don't get to really just i don't know marinate yeah in in movies that are completely divorced from my own experience mm. and i think that's a shame actually yeah, I've, i uh, actually was i've been trying to make an effort just in general to see uh movies from countries that i haven't seen movies from before yeah uh earlier uh, just actually just last month i reviewed a film from the country of lesotho mm. i've never seen a lesotho a film from lesotho before so um I'm happy to have done that. I, I recently reviewed Berlin Alexander Platz. There's a lot of input. I think, I think one of the writers was from Guinea Bissau, yeah. and the main character was from Guinea Bissau. So I haven't seen many very many from uh, Guinea Bissau. Uh, so I'm I'm looking to expand uh, sort of my aesthetic horizons in that way. Mm. Yeah, we can always do a better job of it. That's mm. what it is to it. But you do you do have to seek it out here in yeah. the United States yeah. because because we produce so many films we tend to think that that's the most important thing mm-hmm. and we're Americans so we tend to think we're the most important thing yeah and again a lot of the movies that mm-hmm. are really pushed really hard over here that are from other countries tend to be the ones that they think will do well in America mm-hmm. and that doesn't necessarily give us the full perspective yeah um, but uh, that's a great email thank you so much for writing in that's a good topic thank you yeah um, here's another email this one comes from Eric hello Eric hi Eric uh, dear Bibbs and Mat de Pierre Fouad. <laughs> Nice. Um, first, I'd like to acknowledge, and I, I know I just mangled my French. Don't, don't, don't worry about it. Uh, first, I'd like to acknowledge the superior job you did on my your critically acclaimed episode about Sherlock Holmes. Yay! Thank uh, you so thank much. You. Glad you um, liked it. The quote most influential question has been a favorite among friends of mine to date, and no one has suggested Frankenstein. Uh, excellent choice. Thank you. And that said, I must take you to task Uh-oh. regarding your coverage in all our yesterdays as of late and defend. Harry Mudd. <gasps> okay. Uh, all, our, so, all Our Yesterdays is our Star Trek podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harry Mudd is a character that's now appeared in three episodes that we've covered. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, that, Mud, that, that he'll yeah. eventually appear like... Yeah, Mud, anyway. Mudd's Women, I, Mud, and uh, uh, Mudd's Passion. Passion was the most yeah. recent one on the from the animated series. All Our Yesterdays is a Patreon-exclusive podcast. If you go to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, we are in the middle of reviewing every single episode of Star Trek in order. And we've already gone through the entire original series, and we're about halfway through the animated series, and eventually we're going to go through the movies, Next Generation, etc. I'm not a fan of Harry Mudd as a character. 
Uh, Harry Mudd is a character who is a bit obnoxious. He's a comic relief in a series that arguably doesn't really need it. And fortunately, a lot of his episodes tend to be very sexist. I have, and I'm eager to read here, listen to this email. Mm-hmm. And I'll, but I'll preface it this way. I have done some serious thinking about Harry Mudd as a character. Okay. And I've come to, I'm glad this has come up because I've come to a conclusion about Harry Mudd of my own mm-hmm. that we didn't get to discuss previously and I'm glad I'm going to have an opportunity to discuss it. But mm-hmm. I'll let the email uh, uh, speak right. to itself first. Um, let's see. Uh, d- defend Harry Mudd. Are Mudd's intentions disgraceful? Yes. Is Mudd's treatment of women, women inexcusable? Without question. Was Mudd morally reprehensible? Undoubtedly. However, in his defense, in Mudd's passion, he refers to the various races assembled for his snake oil show as gentle beings, a courtesy that somehow eludes Bibbs and Whitney. <laughs> yes, in wow. recent episodes of our esteemed co-hosts have referred to various races as squid monsters, ape wolf monsters, and plant monsters, just to name a few. When these are all sentient creatures with their own civilizations, languages, and cultures, they are not monsters. If a clod like mud can use respectful nomenclature while addressing non-humanoid races, certainly two such enlightened gentlemen as yourselves can as well. Wow. Am I half kidding? Indeed. However, it does stick out as a sore tentacle when you're both so aware of proper language for gender, ethnicity, and identity. That's fair. Let's let the email finish and we'll discuss this. Because fictional. I, anyway, uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Right. This is actually an excellent point, yeah, and I want to okay. talk about it. But let's uh, let's finish. Keep up the great podcast. Your discussions have helped keep my mind off of the dumpster fire that was the year 2020. I implore any regular listener to either join or upgrade their Patreon to take full advantage of the hours of entertainment Bibbs and Woody produce every month. Ensorcelledly yours, Eric. Thank you. Um, Got to use the word ensorcelled lately. Um. That is actually a great point, and I love you for making that point. Thank you for making that point. Uh, we have we have encountered uh, now that we're in the middle of Star Trek the animated series a lot more uh, elaborate creatures, mm-hmm. a lot more elaborate like looking species in Star Trek than the live action series could afford to do yeah. in the 1960s. So we're dealing with a lot of uh, uh, beings that look like plants and look like you know half animal creatures yeah. and. Um, and we have referred to them, I, I guess, I hadn't even noticed I was doing it, as monsters. Um, I will say this. Some of them are treated in the text as monsters. They're like flying plant pterodactyls that yeah. attack people. Those are being treated as monsters in a monster movie. Uh, however, I've made the argument many a time that uh, in many a monster movie, we're supposed to sympathize with the monster. The monster mm. is alienated. From society in a lot of monster stories, yeah, um, either be- just because of how it looks or because of something that it did that uh, was out of confusion or naivete, hmm. uh, and uh, I do believe that the way that we talk about and treat our fiction is important, and I do believe that it, at the very least, uh, <laughs> correlates to the way that we look at the world around us. Uh, so I am actually going to apologize to the many alien creatures of Star Trek. We were, I assume, being trying to be funny because we're talking about plants that are trying to conquer the world with a giant Spock clone, and that's kind of weird and silly. Yeah. But at the same time, it's a good point. The point of Star Trek is to respect all yeah. all creatures equally, and I'm actually gonna I'm actually gonna take that. I'm gonna like, you know right. what? Fair. Uh, I think it's healthy to. Uh, es- even with the things you love, especially with the things you love, to acknowledge how absurd it is. True. 
And Star Trek can be plenty fucking absurd. Mm-hmm. And that's why we refer to the uh, the space creatures who are, uh, you know, some intelligent writers put a lot of thought and energy into creating uh, at least a culture that could pass within a half hour script mm-hmm. and can seem a little bit palpable within a half hour script or a one hour script, depending on what you're writing. Uh, but at the same time, there is sort of... Um, lascivious isn't quite the word an exploitation vibe to it uh where we're uh, we're here to see creatures we're here to see mm. unusual things we're here to see monsters yeah so referring to them to monsters doesn't refer to them as a species i'm not referring to them within star trek universe right. and having them you know take it personally if i were living in the star trek universe i wouldn't use that that terminology right uh, and if there was any of those but, creatures turned out to be real i mean think of the movie um uh, explorers where aliens refused to come to Earth because of how we treated aliens in our fiction. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, it, I, one could argue that it matters. And I think it's a, I, not an unreasonable argument. I suppose so, but uh, I'm also acknowledging that this is just a science fiction program mm. with a lot of strange, uh, unusual ideas in it, some of which are kind of silly. Agreed. And that's my way of kind of taking the piss out of Star Trek yeah. a little bit. Well, it's also, I think it's worth noting that mm. when we discuss movies, we're sometimes discussing them within the universe of the film, the uh, inner universe of the film. Yeah. But sometimes we're discussing it outside of the universe of the film. We're lo- on the outside looking in. We're, yeah. we're looking at it from the perspective of storytellers. And storytellers take their characters seriously. Some people really just fully believe in them and take them to heart, and they're very real characters to them. But there comes a time when you have to look at them as pieces on a chessboard. They have to become abstractions. And as a result, you sometimes can say, in this scene, this character is a monster. Like, a great Star Trek episode is The Devil in the Dark. Yeah. uh, Where there's a mining colony in space, and there's a mysterious creature that is attacking and killing the miners, and it's a monster episode. This monster is killing people, we have to stop the monster. The twist, and it's not so much a twist nowadays as it is, like, the reveal... Uh, is that the monster was actually the aggrieved party mm. and that it was trying to protect its young mm. and uh, that it, it really wasn't trying to hurt anybody unnecessarily. It was a defense mechanism. And as a result, they all learn a valuable lesson about trying to find equilibrium with their environment and respecting other creatures. And it turns out that creature was very sentient. Um, but its purpose within the narrative until that reveal is that of a monster in a monster movie. Yeah. So to describe it as the monster in the episode wouldn't be entirely inaccurate, but it's a matter of looking at it from the perspective of within the episode or without. Mm. So there may be an occasion in which we will discuss something as a monster and only be referring to it in the function of a story. Yeah. Uh, but I do, again, I do actually believe that the way that we discuss characters in fiction, mm. fiction teaches us how to empathize. Fiction teaches mm. us how to consider the perspectives of others. And I think Star Trek and other sci-fi stories like it uh, present the possibility of what if we encountered something that was incredibly different from ourselves Mm. and here's a viable lesson that we can pre-learn now Mm. before this actually happens to remind us to treat everything with respect and I think that's very valuable. On the subject of Harry Mudd, I do want to, since it didn't really end up being very Mudd-centric, the uh, the email, uh, I do want to talk about uh, I I have an issue with Mudd, I don't find him funny Mm. I find him annoying I find him sexist, which just, for me, I just don't want to hang out with that character. So every time he's on screen, I'm like, someone hit him, please. Uh, <laughs> just, just punch. Just, yeah, right? I mean, come on. He's a, he's a jerk. He's ruining things for everybody. He's endangering everybody. He's a, he's, he's a sexist jerk. He's a jerk. Um, 
But what I've come to, to realize is that I do believe that Harry Mudd serves an interesting function in Star Trek because he is the one recurring character in the original Star Trek uh, who represents capitalism. Yeah. He is a character who is very explicitly out there for number one. He is there to exploit others for his personal gain. He is attempting to make money first and foremost. And that is a premise that is, it would take a while for that to be like purely like antithetical to Star Trek. Star Trek does talk about the existence of money for a while, but eventually they will decide that they take place in a future where money is outmoded, at least amongst the Federation. Um, But I do believe that that provides an interesting contrast. And I think part of the reason why he holds a sustain for him is because he represents like everything this utopia is trying to move away from. And I think it's one of the reasons why Kirk is so disgusted by him. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's interesting. I just find the character annoying and I kind of wish it had been handled better, but I come to appreciate at least the concept of Harry Mudd as a character. Okay. Anyway, moving on. Thank um, you for the email. Uh, here's a letter from, uh, well, name with hells. There's, if there's no name at the bottom, I'm not mm. going to, uh, going to call you out from the subject line. Um, this just says, hello guys, I was inspired by your most recent Iron List Ooh. to make my own list of the top 10 things, starting with the letter C. Ooh, things. And as I am well, le- way less versed than you, way less well versed than you guys, especially on movies, I've opened this up to all kinds of media. Hmm. Yeah, so here's, That's exciting. And here's the top 10 list, counting down from 10. Number 10, Cloak and Dagger, uh, 2018 to 2019. One of the better of the recent crop of teen superhero TV shows. Oh, oh this was based on a Marvel thing, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I heard that yeah, one was good, actually. Yeah, uh, I read the comic a lot as a kid. It was really cool. Yeah, doing a great job of tackling larger issues alongside their standard fare of the genres it's pulling from. Yeah, Cloak and Dagger were two different characters named Cloak and Dagger. Cloak mm. wore Cloak. And he could, like, suck people inside his cloak and, like, dispense mm. them into, like, this shadow dimension. Yeah, Cloak, cloak was, like, this creature of darkness and shrouded in a cloak. And Dagger was... Uh, she had she was she was made of light practically. Yeah, she could like throw these little light yeah. daggers, as it were. So it had a and highly improbable, sexy costume. Um, oh yeah, it was it was like Fredericks yeah. of Hollywood kind of. But they were really hard hitting when they were created. They were like uh, they were these like runaway teens, and they were like used as an experiment and like uh, like drugs, and the drugs gave them powers. It was really dark. Actually, it, was, it seems pretty pretty standard for the time. But yeah, yeah it was pretty. I, the way it read was really dark at the All time. Right. Anyway. Uh, number nine, uh, Charlie's Angels from 2019. Uh, this movie oh. has a specific mix of sapphic and dude bro energy <laughs> to it that I haven't found in anything else, and I really enjoy it. I really want to see that. I actually I, was one of the many people who missed it. I, I finally caught up with it, and I love the tone and vibe. I actually just thought, like, as an action movie, it was a little lacking, just the actual action itself. Oh, okay. Like, the actual storyline was kind of meant, but, like, the characters are great. The tone is yeah. great. I just felt like there was, like, a more... Uh, thrilling film to be made out of it. But I I do appreciate its fans, and I totally get it. You know what I wish? I wish that we could... General audiences were a little bit more accepting of films that just didn't have a story. Mm Mm-hmm. We get fixated on that. What is what is the plot? What happens? What changes throughout? When, a lot of when people a, consider that the baseline of drama is change. Uh, oh yeah, baseline of drama. But why do we need that in the film? We go to this film to see characters, and we go to see scenarios and places, and then we kind of arbitrarily hang it on this story, which is not the part that we're coming to see. Mm-hmm. It's just the sort well, of thing that sort of is the excuse to have all those other things. Well, there's a lot of comics like that mm-hmm. because comics are serialized. And some people have argued that comics are an interesting case in storytelling, especially like ongoing comics because they're trapped in their second act. Yeah. Like there's they, the origin. They can never conclude. Yeah. The origin takes place over one, maybe like four issues. And then it's second act for hundreds and maybe hundreds of issues, maybe even decades. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and uh, but the thing is, is that there's a lot of freedom in that to tell a story in which no one changes. It's just stuff that happens. Or yeah. there's a whole issue of the X Men that's just them having a baseball game. Yeah, and like those yeah. are some of the best. Those are some of the best stories. Mm-hmm. It's great. You know the characters well. I just want to hang out with them. Uh, yeah, I'd love to have just sort of a stopgap sure. film. I would love where to see just, a Marvel movie. Where you, I would love to see a Marvel. I, I, this was actually an idea. I think someone pitched this online where it was mm-hmm. like, hey, what if we did like a Marvel movie set during COVID? And mm-hmm. it's just everyone like in their houses being responsible. Yeah. That's yeah. it. And they're all just, and they, they, I think they, someone, I wish I knew who pitched this. It was such a good idea. The, the idea was like, it's just uh, Peter Parker just like trying to bug them, just trying to like, you know, get them on the phone and just <laughs> talk to everyone via, via Zoom. And I'm like, oh. that's a good idea. Like, Captain America, do you want to talk to the school? Oh, sure. Let me get the guest to like put the costume on. He's already dead at this, this point, is, but anyway. Uh, whatever. That means nothing. All right. Just bring bring him back. Don't even explain it. Just put him back <laughs> in the movie. You don't need to ever have a write a story for that. Yeah, fair enough. Anyway, uh, anyway uh, number eight, Card Captors Sakura from oh. 1998. Uh, this is a classic anime at this point. Uh, one that managed. Oh, I think I saw this on like Saturday morning. I, I, I never uh, got one, into this one, but I do. Know, I do know a lot of people love it. One, one that manages to keep hold of both my imagination and my memories to a massive degree at this point. If I had to point towards something that I would want to be the template for a late childhood, early teen television, this would be it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Card captors uh, Sakura. Post Pokemon, there were a lot of anime imports no, like that were based on Digimon like, and Yu Gi Oh. Yeah, they, they were based on like the, sort of this collector's mentality. Uh, you know, gotta get all the cards, gotta get all the Digimon, that kind of thing. But. Um, what I'm discovering over like time because I I didn't it was kind of a little bit after my time when I was watching that kind of show uh-huh. is that a lot of them were apparently fucking amazing and I just missed it like I've heard mm-hmm. so many people talk about how Digimon made him cry and I'm like damn it and Digimon like a lot of it was worked on by Mamoru Hosoda who's now my favorite filmmaker oh yeah so like I one of these days I really need to check out Digimon. <laughs> Uh, number seven, Curon, uh, 2020, mm. a fantastic Italian TV show about doppelgangers. Neat. It really uh, sings in the pacing and it's scares. Never even heard of that one. That sounds yeah. cool. Uh, Cultist Simulator, 2018. What? I, lo- I love the title. Uh, this this management game, oh, it's a game. Okay. This management game is both a Zen experience and a pure example of emergent storytelling out there right now. Um, okay. Yeah, and emergent storytelling I- is, is capitalized. I have to look up that term. Uh, Kanan, 2009, a mm. sadly difficult to find anime series. This is the story of two rival assassins and the reporter that gets stuck in the middle and has some action sequences that rival even some modern anime. Mm. Uh, number four, Charlie by Charlie XCX. Uh, Charlie, know. she's a pop star. Oh. She, she sang the hook on Fancy, the Iggy Azalea song. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, this is the defining album in a genre called hyper pop. And if it's your thing, it's a brilliant grouping song. A grouping of songs, but if it's not, then it's going to be an off-putting album. Whitney? Yeah? Am I old? Oh, definitely. Wow, okay. <laughs> that, that you asked that just proves that you've been in denial for now, at least seven years. I, I've tried to keep my finger on the pulse of a lot of things, but the thing that has completely passed me by is popular music. No, you just, just have to start paying attention. I, I know, I know. I just It's hard to, keep, it's hard to catch up now. Wow. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, uh, but I've said this on, I think on the letters podcast before that somebody did a study. I don't wish I remembered who or you know, what the circumstances were, but, uh, the, the conclusion of the study was that you stop buying new music after the age of 33. Yeah. 33 was the cutoff point. That's where your, your tastes are pretty much crystallized and you no longer have the sort of frantic need to keep up with everything that's brand new that's coming out. 
and you tend to, and you start exploring. You start going back to the things that influence the stuff you like. Mm. You, you discover new genre, like moribund genres, and uh, you know I've I've experienced this, so I, I can say it's true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, keeping up with the new pop music is something that takes like a little bit more of a conscious effort after thirty, mm-hmm. and yeah. you're and you are over thirty. A so, little. Yeah. I'm a little. I'm in my. I'm in my late. See, don't deny. Don't deny. I didn't say it. Just, just say it. I'm in my late mid thirties. Nope. Say the number. Say the actual number. <laughs> I'm I, I, there you go. I'm, I'm in uh, the middle of my thirties. <laughs> Next year I will be out of the middle of my thirties, and I'm very late in yeah. the middle of my thirties. I'm turning forty three this year. I make no bones done. about that. So, so you're in, yeah. so you're in your early mid forties. No, I'm f- I'm gonna turn forty three this year. I don't okay. have to, to start. Well, you're not even forty three yet. <laughs> you're in your early forties. <laughs> I'm kidding. I actually need right. to get better about just accepting that. I'm in 39. I'm 39. And, and you know, I'm, I'm no expert on popular music. Goodness no. sake. Even when I was of, of quote, hip age, uh, I wasn't paying attention to any of that stuff. I was rejecting all of the, the popular mainstream stuff. It's yeah. always been sort of my thing, I guess. Uh, and, you know, I was listening to jazz records and show tunes and Weird Al Yankovic. You know, there was... Hmm. I was never there for it. Yeah, fair enough. But yeah, there, there are some names have drifted into my periphery. So I know who Charlie XCX is. I've heard the name. All right. I didn't know what they did. Uh, number three, Command and Conquer, colon, Red Alert 3. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is simultaneously a fantastic real-time strategy game and some of the best camp performances by the likes of Peter Stormari, George Takei, and most specifically Tim Curry. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah, those are weird games because it's like on one hand, it's like all just like really intense. Like, oh, we got to move all our tanks. We got to like, and then Tim Curry is giving a half-assed performance. It's like, <laughs> like it's these, it's like FMV video games. So, you know, like give some of the worst live action performance even from good actors it's really funny Tim Curry yeah they called me mad insane Wendell <laughs> who's that from? That's, that's from that's when Tim Curry was on Freakazoid that's right it okay. was like the evil Dr. Moreau type yeah uh, number two uh, Changeling the Lost hmm. from 2007 to the present there's currently a case to uh, of bring your own fun to a tabletop RPGs. But the way in which this game, uh, through its world building and its mechanics, allows for an exploration of how we deal with trauma, both both as individuals and as communities, I feel is not just something good, but important. Wow. And number one, Carmilla from 2014. I brought this one up before, but between the four season web series and the movie, this is uh, some of the best LGBT representation that I've encountered Mm. at such an enjoyable time. Uh, I actually... Uh, reviewed that in print, the uh, oh. web series of Carmilla. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, I remember yeah that. it's it's the Carmilla story. Carmilla is uh, one of the more famous vampire stories. Yeah, one of the earliest like yeah. antecedents to the vampire lore. And yeah, yeah. Uh, and and it's and by it's, all accounts a really yeah. shitty person. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Carmilla, it's also like it's it's queer AF, uh, yeah. and you know has has set precedents for how we tell certain kinds of uh, vampire stories. This new version, it's a Canadian web series uh, set at a, it's sort of like a, a Hogwarts university mm. where people go to learn like spells, but it's all told because the original novel was epistolary. They figured the modern equivalent of that would be a web series. So mm. it's all told from the perspective of an unmoving webcam in a dorm room. Oh, that's a fun so idea. So it's just people sort of giving diary and video vlogs yeah. uh, telling the story. So that works. They, they sort of reconnoiter in the dorm room after some big event and they just sort of tell you all about it. Okay. And yeah, and it's, uh, you know, the, 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 the young heroine is really kind of suspicious of her new roommate who is gothy and really kind of scary. And of course, over the course of this uh, web series, it's revealed that they've been very slowly, gradually falling in love with one another. Mm. And I only saw the first season, but evidently it's gone on, on to be quite a quite a phenomenon 
in Canada. It's not really talked a lot about here in the United States. That's a shame. Um, mm-hmm. That's cool. Is that the end of the email? That's the end of the email. Yeah. Uh, that's a cool list. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I really love that. I know some of those things. Uh, others I am less familiar with. Um, I really am interested in the way that art is getting less like rigidly divided like mm-hmm. it's not just movies books whatever there's actually like because a lot of media is getting more complicated intricate almost hazy in the way that it handles like well, the, the is it te- a video game is it the, an interactive the, experience the technology yeah. is evolving so quickly yeah. that well, uh, people are experimenting with uh different ways to play a game or right. convey information or like a, tell a tale like emergent storytelling is a good example of that and i'm not an expert in it but it's my understanding it's based um it's basically a story that evolves from a person's interaction with a with a like a video game or a game for example but isn't necessarily scripted by it so it's, it's like an artificial intelligence is kind of like reacting to the gameplay i don't think that's i think that's overstating it i think it's uh, just a matter of it being sort of organic and evolving naturally um, but regardless, like that's exciting, and I think that's a new kind of thing. And I think I, I, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if I'm too specialized. This sounds like a lot of cool stuff, and I wish I had more time to play more video games. Mm. And a lot of and invo- getting involved in all these like really experimental web series that are changing the way that we, yeah. changing the language that we use to tell visual stories. I think is really exciting. Yeah, and we got and, to see it like in our generation with stuff like MTV storytelling or video games starting to change the way that we look at yeah. live action storytelling or animated storytelling, and it's just going to keep evolving. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Like, uh, I, uh, I, I kind of put down video games as soon as they started doing the. Um, Characters standing in the middle, and the environment kind of rotates around them. Where you like can, where you, where you can control the camera around your character. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I remember I, you I was, talking about Super Mario sixty four and how you were like, pass. Yeah, it's like as soon as we got to Super Mario sixty four, it's like, nope, too much. <laughs> There's a joystick on the controller now, but and also like twelve buttons. Nope, not not yeah. interested. I'm, I'm I was already in college. I'm okay. I can put it down now. Yeah. And uh, as, in- as, as as such, uh, I'm I'm woefully uh, underexperienced when it comes to most modern. I tried games. so hard to get Winnie. I got him to play. You, some, you, you I, pushed really hard. I got I him to play some of Prince of Persia: Sands yeah. of Time, which I still maintain is one of the best yeah. video games ever made. And he got a little of the ways into it, and then just gave up. It just wasn't interesting. I'm sorry. It's it's just, I, yeah. I think I love that game. I, I, I think it's I, genius. I, 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 sim- but, I simply right. do not care. Uh, but. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there's not important things going on. It's just not something I'm privy to. Yeah. And, and uh, maybe something will crack through at some point. Maybe yeah. I will find that game. It's exciting to learn yeah. about, I think, mm-hmm. regardless. Even but, if it's uh, not necessarily our, our jam. But I did have to uh, <clears throat> sort of acknowledge that a lot of the filmmaking trends that mm. were coming out of that particular kind of video game aesthetic uh it was something that I needed to sort of like go back and acknowledge because films was, was evolving into something that looked uh, a little bit more hyperactive, a little bit more digital, uh, digitally complicated. And my eye wasn't used to that, mm. but I, it, it actually took me years of just sort of bearing the brunt of this new kind of aesthetic for me to realize that a lot of it was actually already precedent being set in video games mm-hmm. and people who were playing a lot of video games were used to that sort of aesthetic. And the people who are making these movies probably were also used to that aesthetic and were tapping into it uh, or like consciously or subconsciously, they were just sort of putting that in films now. And that uh, as a critic was something I needed to become cognizant of. Yeah. 
No, it's fascinating. And it's, it's again, mm-hmm. film criticism isn't something we're like, well, I've seen all mm-hmm. the movies. I'm done. Mm-hmm. You got to learn about everything because yeah, everything mm-hmm. is the, the, the movies that we make, the art that we make in any medium. It's about life, and life is constantly evolving and changing, mm-hmm. and new stimulus is being invented, mm-hmm. and you got to you got to keep abreast of it. <laughs> you got to keep abreast of it, and at the same time, you have to keep up with the classics and the things that are in, you mm-hmm. know, uh, influenced everything. So you have to sort of stretch in both directions. Mm-hmm. You have to reach deep into the present just as hard as you reach deep into the past. It's a full time job, damn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot, lot to go, a lot going yeah. on, and just sort of tracing the long lines of of influence is is really exhausting. Yeah. Uh, but in a fun way. That's why we do it. Yeah, I love it. Anyway, but thank you for that great yeah, email, yeah. and thank you for that awesome list. Yeah. I'm going to check out a few of those things. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, here's a letter from Logan. Hello, Logan. Hi, Logan. Hello, Mr. Bibiani and Mr. McCool. Hello. Hi. Uh, I recently published an essay on my personal website in which I discussed the merits of ratings on various reviews, hmm. and I came to the conclusion that they are hurting criticism. Uh, Roger Ebert had spoken on this very issue before. To quote him, he said, quote, I cringe when people say, how could you give this movie four stars? I reply, what in my review did you disagree with? Invariably, they're stuck for an answer. One thing I try to do is provide an accurate account of what you will see and how I feel about it. I cannot speak for you. Any worthwhile review is subjective. If we completely disagree, my words might nevertheless be useful or provocative. If you disagree with what I write, be my guest. If you disagree with how many stars I gave it, you can mail your opinion where the sun don't shine. (laughs) Didn't mince words that, Roger Ebert. No, he's very bad uh, When critics are typically hired, they are hired because of their ability, their abilities to write eloquently about their studied art form. The words they assemble in the order of, in the order they do so, are capable of moving, entertaining, and intriguing their readers. Hell, the pieces of criticisms are art in and of themselves. Agreed. This is true. That's the point. Uh, a good critic will present a thorough, well-rounded talking point, and then a good reader will engage with that talking point, whether that takes the form of intrigue, agreement, or disagreement. Hmm. Right. Uh, through the text from the critic and engaging with the text as a reader, discussion can thrive and thoughtful discussion at that. Largely, especially in this day where age, day and age where people can rely too heavily on quickness, ratings are seen as a shortcut to provided critical opinion, where in actuality that is not exactly true. Mm. I do see in any way, really, how an assigned numerical value speaks at all for what may be said through prior prior throughout any given review, but it's just a number and a number that people, particularly in the online communities, tend to needlessly fixate on or misinterpret. Someone can declare the absurdity of a 7 out of 10, claiming the film has more value than the designated number without reading a single word of the critic's assessment. Exactly. Uh, Instead, uh, the least interesting conversations stem from this, and debating whether or not a film deserves a 6 out of 10 or a 7 out of 10 overshadow the actual critical engagement of the work. Words should speak for themselves. If at all interested, I've shared a link to the essay below. Thank you. Yeah, uh, LoganGartner.com um, is, is his website. Uh, there, there's a little oh, bit more. Um, anyway, I just wanted to hear your takes on it. I hope this hasn't gone on for too long. Hmm. And I appreciate it if you made it this far. I find you both to be fantastic voices in the world of film criticism. And I look forward to the future shows you create. Signed, Logan. Logan, And for people looking for that uh, website, it's Logan Gardner with a T or a D. Uh, Gartner is, uh, let me... G A E R T N E R Gartner. Yeah, go check out that Logan, essay because LoganGartner.com. Uh, uh, I agree with. I haven't read the essay yet, but uh, <clears throat> I agree with pretty much everything Logan has said in that uh, in that email. Uh, the purpose of film criticism is not to reduce things to a rating. It's functionally, mm. uh, I, I want to say useless, but it's it's. I, I think it's missing the point of both it's, art and criticism. It, it's really reductive. Yeah. And, um, uh, uh, to to bring back to go back to uh, Siskel and Ebert, um, 
Ebert didn't want to have any rating system yeah. on uh, on the TV show. Uh, Gene Siskel was the one who wanted to be a little bit more pragmatic about it. He said he didn't, audiences, like mainstream audiences, didn't want to tune in and hear two guys expound about a f- about film theory. They just wanted to know whether or not to see the film. Uh, so is are should you see it or not? That's, right. a, that's a dichotomy. You can do yeah. that. So they came up with a thumbs up and the thumbs down. Yeah. Uh, and they both kind of hated that. Yeah. That, that that's what they became associated with was this that's kind of oversimplification of a form that they actually had more respect for. That's the danger of yeah. having rating system. Like I've I've had this before. Like I've worked at a website. I've actually like run the editorial film section of a website, and mm. I didn't want to have film ratings. I yeah. thought they. I I agree with that. I think in order to get a sense of what the film critic thinks about the movie, you should read their work. Um, however, the critique that I ran into about that format, mm. which I had to admit had some validity is that unless the review is incredibly well-written, if it isn't clearly negative hmm. or clearly positive, just like a rave or a rant, if it's in the middle, it can be a little difficult to take away overall, how did you feel about it? Yeah. Uh, and as a result, the people who are looking at these reviews, not just for critical analysis, but also to decide, what should I see this weekend? Hmm. Uh, they might not necessarily get that particular nugget of info. And as a result, some form of reductive, simplified iconography can be useful hmm. because, like like Siskel said, some people just want to know whether they should see yeah, it or not. Yeah. And, and as uh, a result, I we came around in our podcast after people said we would like a rating system hmm. to what we have now, which is technically a rating system, but also a rating system that cannot possibly be taken seriously we're, because yeah, it consists entirely uh, the letter C. Yeah, we, we just use the letter C. The highest grade we can give is a C plus, which sounds mediocre by any yeah. other st- uh, measure. So yeah. we're also kind of satirizing the very idea of having to provide a, a, a letter grade, but we do yeah. it anyway. Because again, if, uh, once you include that, yeah, the, uh, some people, will that's all they'll take mm, away. We want yeah. to remove that possibility as much as we can. There, There is a central irony uh, in film and in film criticism. Uh, film is is art but it's also a product yeah it's uh in the best case in the best uh, cases it is an art that can elevate and move and change and give you empathy mm-hmm. uh in the most cynical of uh, examples and this is kind of the the kind of film that tends to be talked about the most widely because they're the most advertised mm-hmm. they're just a big product mm-hmm. uh that they're uh, trying to sell here, you a ticket there's they're trying to sell you a ticket they're trying to th- thrill you they're not trying to really move or challenge you ideally they Uh, can sell you a ticket mm. to something that will then make you want to buy other merchandise like toys Toys, or books, or, yeah. or action figures, or okay. whatever. Yeah, get get you into the theater. Buy food while you're in the theater. It's all mm-hmm. it's all a very money driven uh, business. Yeah. Movies are and expensive. As, People have to make their money back somehow. That is a practicality. Yeah, now, it's now hard as, to deny. As viewers, we can see. Uh, as critics, we can see whatever we want, and we can talk in highfalutin terms about what things are and are not art. About what things are worth your time. Uh, what things are. Not worth your time. I refuse but, uh, to have the conversation hmm. about what is or is not art. By the way, I'm past that shit. It's sure, art. Is sure it good art? Fine. Not necessarily. Hmm. But is it art? <laughs> probably. Uh, if you have may, to have a conversation about whether it's art, it's probably art. Maybe not. Maybe it is. Choose not, your own, choose your own definition. All right. Yeah. It's it's up to you now. It's out of my hands. I, I'm, I'm just I'm backing away from Whitney's statement that we're going to have those those kinds of conversations. I, 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 conversation. I, I was I was not saying we have a conversation. I was using it hypothetically. Uh, Fair enough. But. 
we my point is we can talk about the artistic integrity of a, a film uh, without having to concern ourselves with uh, buying a ticket because we're critics. We get we get screeners of these things, or it's just our profession. Yeah. We're going to see these things because we want to have a good cross section as to what's out there in the uh, out there playing right. And now. people who dedicate yeah. themselves to film criticism are people who are dedicating themselves to making the time. To yeah, see everything, whether they yeah, have to pay for the, it or not. We're making the time, and what we're looking for is the new and the exciting. Mm. We're not looking for a basic thrill anymore. Uh, that can be fun, and if yeah. we find a basic thrill we're gonna and we like it, we're going to say so. Of course. Uh, but critics and uh, audiences who see six films a year are going to have a different reaction to certain films, I think, yeah. generally speaking. Uh, so a lot of people see films as either an art or a product. And which means when it comes to criticism, you're either going to have an art critic or a consumer advocate. Mm -hmm. And that's where things get a little bit tricky uh, because as film critics, we like to hone our art. We like to Mm. be good critics. We like to engage with uh, cinematic arts in a way where we can contribute to the conversation and we can uh, continue the discussion and actually engage with an audience and with a film in a sort of a critical, intelligent way. Mm-hmm. And there are a great number of audience members who don't want to do that. They mm-hmm. just want the consumer advocacy. They want Fine. to know, they want to know how good is it on a scale of one to 10? Should yeah. I buy a ticket to it? How many times should I see it? Cause I'm going to see one of these movies four times rather than two. <laughs> uh, that, that's an issue now. I know sure. people do go see films multiple times in a theater. I wonder what that's like. I forgot. I, it's been a while since uh, I've had. I, can't remember the I, I haven't rewatched a film for years and years. It's, yeah, it's like this. I haven't watched a film for a second time. The last time. movie I saw twice, and granted, last year was a mess. But like the last yeah. movie I saw twice in a theater, uh-huh. was the remake of Overboard. Oh my god! Okay, it was not the plan. <laughs> It was well, not you, a plan. You saw it at the screener and then you saw the completed version later, right? Because when yeah. we saw it at the screener, it wasn't I, quite done. I saw an early version of the film yeah. initially uh, where the, there were things that were clearly wrong, like TV screens that they hadn't keyed in, or like, or like or the subtitles were misspelled. I actually told them about a few of those. Mm. Uh, but then like when it came time to review it and it got pushed back or something, so it was months later, I realized that, okay, A, it's been a while, and B, they've probably changed a few things, so I need to see this dang thing again. Okay. So I saw it again at pretty much the exact same reaction but i had to do my due diligence mm-hmm. but uh it's not that's still not the same as i liked it so much i saw it twice i think the last movie i saw <laughs> i liked so much i saw it twice in a theater yeah i can't even remember yeah it's been um, a bit i feel I, like i remember i reviewed men in black three mm. uh and then my family came into town and they wanted to take me to see a movie yeah. so i ended up seeing that one a second time yeah. in theaters but that was at the behest of my family. Yeah. And it's not through lack of excitement or anything. It's just I have to see so much stuff that seeing a movie more than once in a theater is a luxury I don't have time for. Yeah. Um, and I know eventually I'll, I'll, I'll own it or I'll have access to it on streaming and I'll watch it again at home. But like mm. seeing things in a theater more than once is very decadent yeah. well, for me at this point in my life. It, it's also frustrating when it comes to a lot of discussions of certain kinds of pop movies because people mm. do see like mainstream audiences mm-hmm. and a lot of critics I know actually who are devoted to uh, like, I'm, and I'm thinking of like the big blockbuster entertainments, your Marvels yeah. and your Disney's, or even just a particular uh, genre. If you have yeah. like an area of focus, mm. you can maybe make more time for well, it. A, yeah. a lot of people watch you know, had watched Avengers Endgame three, four times in a theater. Sure. And if I was so in high they, school, I probably would have. Uh, yeah, maybe you so. Know? And yeah. Uh, it, yeah, it, 
there were, that was when I was seeing films multiple times. Exactly. And as such, a lot of people retain little details about these movies that I have just not committed to memory. Sure. It's like, oh, and I remember this scene and it moved me to tears because I remember it very distinctly. It's like, what character, when was this in the movie? <laughs> I remember it better than you do, but I yeah. do know the feeling. Um, mm-hmm. But back to, back on track. Um are ratings hurting criticism? I think the misunderstanding of what criticism is is hurting criticism. And I think that there are certain aspects of criticism that are very public that are intensely misleading. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a big part of the damage. There's a thing going on right now. People are talking about how uh, because someone dug up an old review of Citizen Kane from the 1940s that was really oh, yeah. negative because Citizen Kane wasn't met with universal acclaim when it initially came out. Partly because William Randolph Hearst's newspapers were specifically told to trash it and partly because some people didn't get it. You know, it was a little or, too art house. Or maybe at the time. some people just didn't like it. I know, That's I'm, fine, I'm just saying, like, it wasn't like people like, oh, like it, it wasn't everyone's hmm. taste at the time. And there was also a lot more context going on that was very specific to the film. But, um, but because of that, Citizen Kane no longer has like a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And a lot of people are pointing out that, ah, oh, but Paddington 2 does. Ergo, Paddington 2 is now the greatest movie ever made. There's actually and a lot of films on Rotten Tomatoes that have a 100%. There's actually but, yeah. quite a few. I don't know why uh, we had to single out Paddington, Paddington 2. It's a sweet movie. I like it fine. I actually prefer the original Paddington. But uh, uh, I like Paddington 2 better. Really. Well, I, it, I don't care. They're both great. They're both really wonderful. But, um... A hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes doesn't mean everyone thinks it's perfect. A lot of people get confused about that because it says a hundred percent, and we mm. associate a hundred percent with perfection. Uh, that's not what it means. It's it not, means that every critic didn't give that a hundred percent. No, it's not. It, that's not like a, rec- a an average review rating. Mm. What that means is that one hundred percent of the critics who submitted reviews for that movie gave it at least a pass. They gave it a, a thumbs up. Yeah, basically, and, it, it, and that doesn't. It, some of them probably thought it was great. Some of them probably thought it was fine. But, like, no one just said, it sucks, don't see it. Which, is, in and of itself, is remarkable, if you have enough reviews. Mm. But, regardless, that doesn't mean universal widespread acclaim. It doesn't mean what it looks like on the surface. So, this sort of surface approach to what film criticism is, combined with a lot of other misconceptions about what film criticism is, like... You know, ah, oh, film critics are being paid by studios. We're not. No, no. <laughs> that's not a thing. Um, or, or all of these, like, ah, oh, all you guys are just trying to be like trolls for attention. I'm not going to claim that no one has ever done that, well, but if they are, they're shitty fucking critics, and well, I don't, I don't like to associate with them. There, there is a, st- and I admit, even in in the best critics, there is a, st- a streak of being a contrarian, well, uh, trying a- trying to challenge the status quo a little bit as part of what we do. It's in our terms responsibility the, to speak up. It's a responsibility to speak up when we have a contrary opinion because otherwise we're tamping down voices of dissent. And I think it is a critic's responsibility to speak up for a movie if you genuinely like it and everyone else is trashing it and vice versa. And it's your responsibility to be as vocal about that as you're comfortable being. Now, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of people who can't do that because the internet is full of assholes and trolls and creeps and stalkers and that fucking sucks Mm -hmm. but it is our responsibility to be honest about what we are trying to talk about and to be as uh intelligent in our discourse as we possibly can and to sometimes be the voice of dissent but uh again there's just so many misconceptions about how film criticism works and what it should really boil down to is read the review just read the whole thing. Read the whole fucking review. That's it. That's that's the film critic giving you their thoughts. Maybe they're doing it in like a long Twitter thread. That's fine. If they're published, they're published. If they're doing it on Letterboxd, wherever they're doing it, 
read the actual review. Don't go off of the quick tweet where they're saying, here's a link to my review. Hmm. Don't go off of initial reaction because that's all that is. Read the fucking review or listen to the review or watch the video of the review. Get the actual presentation because going off of someone's review, like the idea of like taking someone's whole review of a movie and only focusing on the star rating or the headline, which sometimes critics don't even get to write um, and judging your entire opinion based off that or on like one tweet is like basing your opinion of a movie based on the tagline. Yeah. You're yeah. not actually getting the full experience. That's no. not what they wanted you to see. And uh, just because the way uh, online discourse is shaped and because the way a lot of these things sort of by necessity need to proliferate through these online models, mm -hmm. like these, these social media models, an entire outrage firestorm can be sparked off by a badly worded headline that yeah. has nothing to do with the critic or the review mm -hmm. or their actual view or maybe it like vaguely alludes to something they said but it's actually a lot better elucidated in the review oftentimes like the the social media post is written by someone whose responsibility is social media not the actual content of the story mm -hmm. and as a result they may need oh this headline doesn't fit in the tweet i'll just shorten these two words not mm -hmm. realizing that you just dramatically change the context of something mm -hmm. if you know what you're talking about yeah and that person might not have even read the review themselves yeah and uh, unfortunately people take that bad headline and run with it yeah. and that can well and, and it's you, and you, yeah, it's frustrating the, because the it is can be pilloried for that it's yeah. kind of bizarre it's frustrating i i will critique the tweet mm. especially if i feel like it's promoting something bad or something that's simply inaccurate and we don't want misinformation to get out there um I think that's important, but like, yeah, it's not necessarily the person who wrote the article's responsibility. The article is that person's responsibility. It's also the editor's responsibility, but way too many publications have totally hands-off editors right now, and that's not a good system. I could go on. That's a lot of inside uh, baseball, yeah, but, but like, <laughs> we're, we're getting off the beaten path. What it boils down to is this. There's actually a lot of problems in film criticism, and I don't know the way to fix it because they are myriad and they're really built into the system. Mm. All we can really do is to try to have the most thoughtful conversations we can have, whether we're doing it on, uh, in print where it's very one-sided and then people can just respond however they respond in comments or online or whatever, or if we're actually having that conversation in podcast form or however we're doing it. Mm. We're trying to be as thoughtful as we can and being reductive can be dangerous but it does serve at least a mild yeah, function, which is at the very least, if you're looking at it for consumer advocacy, which some people are, it can at least be clear. Yeah. So I struggle with this. I do believe that there is a small place for that. And our weird rating system is specifically an attempt to try to mitigate that. Yeah. 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 Sort of. I, I would, golly, would I, would I love it if uh, some publicist got a hold of one of our podcast reviews and, like, put, and put C plus <laughs> on their poster, like not really, really understanding what it is we were doing. It'd be, or, so, you know, it'd be so fucking it's like great. Like C plus, that's their high, or it's like C plus, highest rating. Like yeah, I know they put that underneath sometimes. Cause, I would love uh, it because some papers do like four stars, some do five stars. So, so four stars out of five. <laughs> so, so some will say four stars, highest rating. Yeah, <laughs> five stars out of a hundred. Oh shit! I would you know, love, like, I would love because we just reviewed like the Mitchells versus the Machines, and I compared that movie. Maybe if you listen to the review, you'll see the, the context uh, favorably to Citizen Kane in terms yeah. of like just a debut film that did really, everything really innovative, using every tool in the toolbox. Yeah, just absolute pure creative energy, and it all worked. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a rare thing. Uh, 
I would love it if that like quote like you know compare comparable to Citizen Kane showed up on like the the Oscar campaign for it oh. followed by C plus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as good as Citizen Kane, C plus. <laughs> It's not my exact quote, but fair. Yeah, the, uh, I, I was this. This is off the beaten path, but yeah. I, I got I got quoted on a video box. Uh, it's happened happened a couple times, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the last time was for the Blu-ray of Midsommar. Yeah, uh, my review of Midsommar uh, was printed on the back, and uh, I it, love this it's, one. It's really unfortunate because the way they printed it, like the way they they laid out the typesetting. Mm-hmm. Uh, made it look like I was trying to do like this cute little rhyming couplet. Yeah, it rhymes. Because uh, <laughs> it rhymes. Like it's the, so great. The, the genre, it's like, uh, and this is from my review. I said that the genre's found a new master in filmmaker Ari Aster. <laughs> but they they laid it out in a way that it's like, oh look, I'm I'm doing this like cute little like musical riff it's for such you. A, it's such an artsy movie. I wonder if they picked yours on purpose. Maybe so. Specifically for that, because <laughs> it sounds like I'm hip talking. That's hilarious. Yeah, I'm on a couple so, of them. So it was a little embarrassing. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm quoted. Oh, shit. It sounds like, sound like a mook. I can't re- I'm, fr- I'm always frustrated when like they quote me, but they only credit the publication. So yeah. you can't tell who the critic is. So mm. I'm like, well, which critic of that publication? Because they're not they're not a monolith. Yeah. You know, right. I want to I know who said it, especially if it's me. Um, but uh, the only one I can think of offhand, I know I'm quoted on a couple, but the only one I can think of offhand that I'm quoted on is Frozen. Yeah, the, that's yeah. right. Yeah, went on Frozen. I was very taken with Frozen when it first came out. I still love it, but I, maybe a little less. But like, it's, <laughs> it's. I still think it's great. I still think that movie's genius. Um, all right, we got time for like one more. Let's right, do one here, more. Here's another letter. This kind, one comes from a, Thomas. Hello, yeah. Thomas. Um, hello, Bibbs and Rockmeister McQuell. Hi, K E W E L. All spellings are correct. Um, during your discussion of the terminal. Uh, on episode 170 of Critical Acclaimed, you mentioned, you questioned if Steven Spielberg has ever made a cynical film. We were pointing out that he's actually a very optimistic filmmaker. Generally speaking, Generally yes. speaking. Mm. Um, I would put to you that AI artificial intelligence is Spielberg at his most cynical. Mm. While many credit this to the production being conceived and shepherded by Stanley Kubrick for a few decades until his death, I'd argue that Spielberg's stamp is still definitely there. It's one of the few films he's directed that also has a screenwriting credit on, and by many accounts, Kubrick conceived of the first and third acts of the film and many consider uh, that to be the more sentimental while Steven Spielberg's meta contributions were fleshing out the second act. A second act of the features, a robot flesh fair where humans take glee in seeing androids ripped apart and only stop when they think young Haley Joel Osment robot David is actually a human boy who can feel feelings. Never mm-hmm. thinking a machine could possibly be capable of such things. Uh, Jude Law's character, Gigolo Joe, is also introduced during this act, playing the only uh, consistently kind adult figure to the Osmond character, a robot Gigolo who feels empathy yet is framed for murder before eventually being captured and implied to be dismantled by human law enforcement. The film's overall story is full of human apathy, as humans lack concern for potential sentience and artificial beings, dooming Osmond's David character, who is a recreation of the scientist of William Hurt's own dead son, that he plans on mass-producing and distributing robot copies of, like an action figure, to forever be imprinted on a mother who can't love him back. Critics at the time complained about the ending being too sappy, but I'd argue it further sells the dark tragedy of a robot being programmed to love, only ever finding acceptance in a separate artificial fabrication of the mother he always wanted. I'm curious to hear if you two have any thoughts on AI. When I saw it in theaters at a young age, I was stunned by how upsetting it was, especially after hearing it was from the director of Jurassic Park and (laughs) E.T., I recently revisited it last year and would champion it as Spielberg's most underrated film, serving as a crucial fulcrum point in Spielberg's transition from massive blockbusters to ambitious dramas as the new millennium hit. Thanks, and keep up the great work, Thomas. Uh, I do agree with that last point. I think Mm. AI was the... 
sort of like the the maturity point for Spielberg, where he kind of mm. moved from making just uh, well-regarded, exciting adventure films into things that were maybe a little bit more thoughtful. I, and, I um, think that disregards some of his more thoughtful films made before that. Like well, Schindler's, Schindler's List, for God's Empire sake. Empire of uh, the Sun, Color Purple. Like and these uh, are, also the Color Purple. He, but, um, he, he did make other thoughtful yeah. films before that. This is true, but uh, something did change in him, I think, when he made yeah. AI. Uh, and when, Spiel, uh, when Kubrick died, and they were yeah. good friends, yeah, uh, Spielberg and Kubrick. And uh, I think in trying to make a film... Like Kubrick, because you can see a lot like Spielberg is actually trying to change his style a little bit. He's doing a lot mm-hmm. more sustained shots. I think he was yeah. thinking of Kubrick a lot when he was making that movie. I, re- I remember some people saying uh, that, like, what if Kubrick had made the movie? And a lot of people said, well, there'd probably be fewer shots that specifically evoked Stanley Kubrick movies. Yeah. Like and I'm like, wanna, yeah, 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 that's that's Spielberg being playful and like paying homage to yeah. the co-writer of the well, the well, not the co- he's not the credited co-writer, but the co uh, the creator uh, co- of the yeah, co-creator project. of AI. Yeah. Uh, and and I think he was also trying to work in work in a lot of cynical like Kubrick's kind of cynical worldview because yeah. uh, Kubrick is actually quite a cynical filmmaker uh, about a lot of great number of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, even when he makes something that feels like a, a little bit more exhilarating, it still ends badly. Uh, like Spartacus might be his most mm. mainstream accessible kind of Hollywood film, if you will. Still has a sad ending. And yeah, it still has a sad ending. I mean, granted, that's not, he was a work for hire on that one, yeah, but like, regardless. I, and, I, and, and he hated working on it, but um, yeah, but yeah I, I, I think I do, re- I remember watching it and I did revisit it a couple of years after about how there was this weird clash of the two filmmakers kind of warring each other in that movie. Because there was this sort of stead view of humanity as this bleak, unloving thing that has now foisted its emotions onto its robots. We're going, we are so distant from our own experience that we've essentially built robots to experience things for us. Remember a, a gag in uh, Futurama once where uh, a fellow says, I've, I've built a robot. It'll do everything for me. Robot, mix me a drink. Robot, go attend my son's uh, you know, track meet. Uh, and then the son runs in. I want to hug my daddy. And it hugs the robot. It's like, oh, no, I've, I've given too much to this robot. It's taken all the love of my family. Robot, feel this tragic irony for me. <laughs> the robot falls to its knees and goes, no. <laughs> The larger, uh, the, the, sorry, I'll finish. Sorry. Uh, no, just, uh, yeah. but I, I saw that kind of um, wry darkness about the, you know, the the lack of human spirit and how how technology has sort of robbed us of our ability to sort of really experience emotions and only our robots can. Yeah, uh, is something that was that Spielberg was trying to make in his way, which uh, is a little bit more of a little bit more sentimental. He was trying mm. to say, well, these beings have emotions. Let's, let's go into their emotional life and see things through their perspective and really empathize with them and have our hearts swell at their plight. And I feel like those were two different movies that didn't click together incredibly well. Now that we're having this conversation, I feel like the greater issue of is Steven Spielberg capable of cynicism? Is he really a schmaltzy filmmaker? And the more I think about it, the more I realize I don't think he is. I think he, he is cynical he, or schmaltzy. I think he's I think he's actually more cynical than we give him credit for. Okay, and I think that leads to his films feeling schmaltzy because I think that he understands that we live in a cynical universe where things are really bad hmm. all the time. I think that the darkness that you will find 
in films like Schindler's List, obviously, historical tragedy. Mm. Um, or even things like, you know, the hubris of science leading to man-eating monsters in Jurassic Park. Or, um, you know, the the horrible, you know, robot massacre in AI. Or mm. even something like in The Post, where there's this rampant government corruption that's trying to tamp down freedom of speech. And I think that you, the reason why Steven Spielberg's stories about overcoming these horrors, whether they're real life or just feel real because of the emotional reality he's created in the story. I think the reason why overcoming those things feels powerful in a Spielberg movie is because he believes in the cynicism. Mm -hmm. I think he has to, otherwise these things would have no efficacy. Well, I, I think, I think, as, the, I think he believes that they can be overcome, but he, yeah, believes that, he believes that it is hard mm -hmm. to do it. Yeah, and as well, a result, is... every time it is, it is worth documenting. It's it's worth documenting, but he clearly has faith that triumph is kind of inevitable. Uh, I that, think he that a lot wants of these, to believe that. Yeah, it, you know, the, which is I think one of one of the reasons a film like Schindler's List is so striking. Yeah, it's because we know how that turned out. Yeah. Uh, we know history, and he is trying to wrestle. He's trying to fit his own personal uh, sense of optimism mm -hmm. into the darkest part of human history. Yeah. But I think, and, I think that he believes, I think if he was yeah. purely an optimist, mm -hmm. he wouldn't be able to catalog that dark side of humanity mm -hmm. as viscerally as he does. I think he has but, to believe in that, yeah, at least but, the reality of it. But his, his optimism always wins out in the end is my point. Is but he gets to, we see the monsters. Yeah. We see how horrible it is and he's excellent at depicting that. Mm -hmm. But the monsters don't win in the end. Well, let me ask you this. Let me yeah, ask the you military this. guys don't murder ET. <laughs> well, let me, yeah. fair, fair. Yeah. Uh, ET does, however, abandon the child. But I, I for me, I feel you, you, you talk about the ending, and I think mm -hmm. one could make the argument that purely cynical endings, especially in mainstream entertainment, leaving people without hope is maybe cynicism without great purpose and maybe teaching people that it is extremely difficult but we have to fight in order to make things better mm. is a more practical message than just everything sucks. So one well, could one could, one could make that argument. But the other okay, thing I will say, well, yeah, okay. I, I'm, I'm just saying, I think there's multiple ways of looking at it. The other thing I'll point out, and it's pointed out in the email, AI is one of the only, only two films mm. in which Steven Spielberg has screenwriting credit. The other one is Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is a great movie. It's also a pretty uh, cynical film. I've, I've, I've heard it argued that uh, it's about, I mean, what was it? Like somebody says, like, start a stopwatch and like by the 20 minute mark, you'll get to see children in peril in a Steven Spielberg movie. Yeah. Uh, or you'll see daddy issues. That's sort of like the running theme. He, he had a theme, uh, yeah. And whether or not that's something very personal to him about his own relationship with his father, or it's just uh, sort of a, a story writing trope that he's fond of, whatever he, the reason. It's, it's pretty well documented. Yeah. He had, he had yeah. issues with his own father. And that's a complicated story. We're not mm. going to get into that. It's all biographical. But thing, yeah, but yeah. Uh, the, um, I've lost my train of thought. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're saying every 20 minutes you're going to run into a child. Yeah, peril, you're, yeah. you're going to run into to children in peril. Uh, and when it comes to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, it is essentially about a father's quest to get away from his family. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The two films that he wrote, that he has a screenwriting credit on, I'm sure he had his hand in all of them, but the two films that he wrote, where he is the guiding screenwriting force... One film 
is about a father who experiences essentially the sci-fi version of a midlife crisis Mm -hmm. and decides to heroically, in his eyes, abandon his family. He's going to go off on this magical adventure and he will not see his family again, probably. I I found something more important than you. Yeah, and that's a very... And if you look at it from a kid's perspective, that's an incredibly dark way to look at it. If you look at it from an adult perspective, that's an incredibly conflicting way to look at it. Mm -hmm. Because, yes, that is an incredible journey, but if you're leaving your family, that sucks. Yeah, for your it's, family. It sucks. It, 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 it might not speak well of you. It, it's complicated. Um, and I think that that's, there's a certain cynicism in that. And AI is a film about a child who is seeking love, who is placed into a universe that is not designed to give it back to him. And even when it is, it feels false. Mm. Because it is. It's, it's, a, it's an illusion. Uh, or at the very least, it's fleeting. Yeah. And those are the two films he wrote. <laughs> The ones with the really cynical endings. Yeah, maybe, so maybe, maybe, maybe there's there's a little yeah. bit more to his. Uh, yeah, I think we're writing his I th- view. I think I think it's easy to write him off as a schmaltz artist, but I think his schmaltziness stems from an understanding of that the audience needs to recognize real cynicism in order to feel like overcoming it matters. Mm-hmm. And I think there are times when he has succumbed to that cynicism. So I take that I take it back. I think he's actually a more nuanced filmmaker than we give him credit for sometimes. I do think sometimes he whiffs the ending and goes too far. Yeah. But I also believe that it's weaponized in a way. And I do think there is a purpose to it. So, yeah. I do find, uh, but if you look at his his, uh, genre films, that is his big adventure films uh, before AI, and the ones he made after, you can see his interest shift really dramatically. Oh, sure. I think he's a uh, lot less interested in escapism. Yeah. I mean, even even the Indiana Jones movie he made afterwards mm-hmm. just feels like his heart really wasn't in it. Yeah, he, like he wasn't really passionate like, about it. Like he seemed it, like he was uh, having fun, but it seems like he really yeah, like wasn't the, uh, like desperate to tell that story. We can have a uh, discussion about uh, his War of the Worlds film. Yeah, and that's, how, that's how a that's, horror movie. It's, it's a horror movie with this... Um, I read a really great uh, review, and I actually uh, it was written by Andy Klein, and he uh, argued that uh, if you go into War of the Worlds, understanding that it's all happening in Tom Cruise's head, then it makes a lot more sense. Interesting. Uh, in that he's sort of like this deadbeat father. The kids uh, are like dropped off with him, and they they hate him. He's just a bad. They dad. don't need him. They, yeah, yeah. He's, he's lost contact. He's just he, he's adrift. Yeah, as a parent. So it's a metaphor so, for a parent. So that he has this fantasy now, where something really extraordinary happens, where he gets to rescue his kids. So by the time you get to this really like hugely artificial ending where like grandparents just never had to leave their house. They were fine. They're just sort of standing there in the street and everything's really sun dappled and everything just sort of works out. It feels phony because it is. And I think maybe that was the point Spielberg was trying to make. I feel like that could have been an act of self-criticism, but that's all up for debate. Well, I think, I think something like that, like it's easy to say like, Oh, it's all like a dream. And I'm like, it's not, Mm. it's like, it's a movie that is both things simultaneously. I think it is, Mm. it's, it is itself literally, and it is also itself as a metaphor, and the shift isn't always necessarily clear. And I think that's interesting, but I also can appreciate why that's a little dissatisfying if you really just want to mm-hmm. get it, as opposed to it's. I think it's a. I think it's an impressively ambitious blockbuster. Yeah, I really do. I, it's not my favorite Steve Spielberg brand new stretch, but I I really fucking love it. Actually, I think it's a really <laughs> cool film. Um, anyway, um, but that's it for we've got mail this week. Thank you everybody for writing in. Uh, if you want to write in. If you haven't already, you can write in letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once again, that email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. 
Uh, we don't have time to read all of our emails because, as you may have noticed, we like to talk. Uh, but so we try to get to as many as we can, and we're really grateful for all of them. And thank you so much. If you want to interact with us in other ways, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Critic Claim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. You're also, uh, if if you would like, you can join our various patrons over at Patreon.com/slash Critically Acclaimed Network, uh, where we have a lot of exclusive shows, including, as we mentioned on this show. Uh, all our yesterdays, our podcast mm. where we review every single episode of Star Trek. We also have Holy Batman, where we review every single episode of the 1960s Batman. Mm. Uh, we have Not on Disney Plus, where we talk about the various uh, movies that Disney could put on Disney Plus, but mysteriously is not. Mm. Uh, we do commentary tracks. We have opportunities for comments. We have uh, Discord hangouts. We have all kinds of things that are available. Uh, over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network big shout out thank mm. you to every single one of our patrons without whom none of our shows none of them would be possible we would not be able to, to afford the time so thank you to everybody who keeps this show afloat and if you can afford to, to, to chip in we'd be incredibly grateful if you can't we get it <laughs> times are really hard but if you could leave us a review subscribe uh, wherever you find us, that would really, really help. And if you see anyone online asking for podcast recommendations, if you can give us a shout, every little bit helps. All mm-hmm. that is just the bee's knees. Um, and uh, uh, of course, we got a lot of soap. Uh, over at Etsy.com, you look for Salt Cat Soap, all one word. Uh, you will find a store dedicated to the handcrafted salts uh, of my wife and partner, M. Lapis da Silva. I've designed a few myself. I'll be Mm. designing more in the future. Uh, We've also uh, recently debuted our new line of hand lotions and also bath salts. Mm. Uh, So uh, by all means, check those out. Uh, It's probably too late to get them in time for Mother's Day, but why not try? (laughs) (laughs) And of course, Father's Day is coming up. Everyone's got a birthday. Come on down. Check it out. Um, So we got new soap designs every single month, sometimes uh, in between, and... uh, yeah, all that's going on. And also, don't forget, uh, M. Lopez da Silva has a novel that came out late last year. Mm. Uh, it is a retrowave, slasher, vigilante, feminist, pro-queer, pro-sex work, horror, action movie, thriller novel. It's called Hooker, and it is about a serial killer who is hunting sex workers in the 1980s and a sex worker who decides to become a vigilante who uses hooks as weapons. Uh, to take them down. Uh, mm-hmm. It's gotten really good reviews. Like, seriously, you look up the reviews, they're really excellent. Uh, so uh, you can check that out. You can find that on Amazon. You can find that on Barnes & Noble. Uh, check it out. Sure would appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's it. So thank you, everybody, for listening to We've Got Mail. Sincerely yours, Dibs and Whitney. <laughs>